Today, Skimmed from the Couch is presented by AC Hotels by Marriott. It's a global hotel brand that we're excited about. More on that later. First, let's get into the episode. I would look at everything in my life and question, like, is there a solution here? Is there something to build here? And so that moment of inspiration when I was out of dog food could have just come and gone like any other time. But because I was in this entrepreneurial mindset, I was able to kind of capture that moment and discover it as something that could then turn into a company. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So please welcome Leah Buskey-Sullivan to the couch. Leah is an engineer and entrepreneur who founded one of the first gig economy companies, TaskRabbit, the mobile and online marketplace that hooks you up when you need someone to help you move, pick up your laundry, clean your place before your family shows up for a visit, build your furniture. I have used that many times. Leah built TaskRabbit from the ground up and led the company before selling it to IKEA in 2017. Building IKEA furniture, obviously a huge market for taskers. We've all been there many, many times. Today, Leah is helping to build other startups as a general partner at the venture capital firm Fuel Capital. Leah, welcome to the couch. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. We are so excited to talk to you. Um, I think as Daniel was saying in the intro, we, we've we used TaskRabbit many a times. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's nice to officially say thank you in person. Um, so want to get into just kind of your background. What is not on your resume? If we looked at your LinkedIn, what would we not find? Well, um, what you would not find is probably my strong passion around the arts. I actually grew up as a ballet dancer, uh, and I danced for 25 years before I started TaskRabbit. Yeah, and then gave it up when I started the company, because who has time to do any sort of extracurriculars when you founded a company? (laughs) Yes. Wait, that's crazy. So were you dancing professionally or for fun before you started TaskRabbit? For fun, um, and I was dancing in the Boston area, and so uh, mostly ballet and jazz, and we would do shows in the Boston area, but it was something I was pretty serious about, and in college, I actually had a uh, minor in dance. I was a computer science major, but then a minor in dance. It's funny that you say you don't have time because I think I was joking the other day that like all of my hobbies have disappeared. And that's that's a huge one. Tell us a little bit about what it means to be a general partner now and what your day-to-day looks like. So at Fuel Capital, uh, I joined Fuel about two years ago as a general partner. My partner, Chris Howard, founded the firm about six years ago, raised two funds on his own, and we just launched a $75 million fund that we deploy that we raised together. Um, so the day-to-day now, is a lot of meeting with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we try to meet with two to three entrepreneurs every single day, hear pitches, follow up on meetings, doing diligence. We meet with a lot of co-investors as well because our model is very collaborative. So we like to invest alongside um, other investors, some of which are investors in Skim as well. Um, and so a lot of meetings with other investors. Um, and then time as well just to do research and to think and do diligence and 
you know, my background in engineering and technology, I think, really drives this passion in me to stay ahead of the curve on what's coming new from a technology standpoint. And so I'll spend some time thinking about that. Do you think that anybody who knew you when you were growing up when, and when you were doing ballet is surprised about what your career is? <laughs> well, I'm sure some people are surprised. <laughs> um, I mean, I grew up in a very tiny town, Shirley, Massachusetts, population 4,000. I mean, I went to a school that had in one building kindergarten through eighth grade. I mean, it was super, super tiny. So I'm sure a lot of people are surprised um, about what, I, what I'm doing today. But it's funny because when I think back, I remember when I was eight years old asking my father what the highest title in a company was. <laughs> and he told me it was being a CEO, a chief executive officer. And I remember starting my first company, which I called Pollution Solutions. Good name. We like <laughs> a rhyme. Yeah, it's very <laughs> rhymey. Um, and it was this recycling program that I started in my elementary school. And it was basically an excuse to kind of boss around my little sister and my cousin. But I set up offices in our basement. <laughs> I had a whole like poster board pitch and program I brought to the school. And so there was something, I think, in me from a very early age that maybe knew this was the path. So we're going to come back to your work and what you're doing now at Fuel, but we want to talk now about your first baby, TaskRabbit. was my first baby. So <laughs> you started out as an engineer. You were working for a startup that was bought out by IBM, as we said. And then in 2008, you had an idea for an errand service. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Skim that story for us. <laughs> so it was February of 2008. I remember it was February because it was cold and snowing outside. And I was living in Boston at the time. And it was one of those awful winters. And I was meeting friends across town for dinner when I realized I was out of dog food. And at the time, I had this 100-pound yellow lab named Kobe I kept very well fed. He was the best dog. Um, and when I realized that a dog, I was out of dog food, I thought, this is such a simple problem. Why isn't there a simple solution? Uh, four months earlier, the first iPhone had come out. So this is very early days of the iPhone. There was no app store. Mobile technology was just emerging. But as an engineer, I thought, there's got to be someone I can connect with on this phone, someone who's at the store at this very second. I should just be able to connect with them right now and say, I need dog food. And so I became obsessed with this, this idea and this te new technology that was emerging around social location and mobile. And I ended up quitting my job at IBM four months later to build the first version of the site. That sounds so amazing, thinking back to what it's become. But you have the idea. And then how did you actually turn it into something? What were the first steps that you took? Yeah, I mean, I like to say I certainly was not the first person to have this idea, right? The idea for TaskRabbit is a very simple one, getting help from your neighbors. Um, but I was the first to really put it into action and to leverage the technology that was just emerging. I mean, we were so, so early. It was, this was before Lyft and Uber even existed, right? So um, the thought that you would ask a stranger for help was kind of insane at the time. Um, but with my engineering background, I knew that I could build what was in my head and I could leverage the mobile technology. I knew I had this theory that with Facebook emerging, I would be able to build trust between strangers because I thought, okay, 
I could leverage the social graph. And if you were hiring a TaskRabbit and had a good experience with them, then your friends would be more likely to hire that person Did you as call well. it TaskRabbit back then? Actually, in the very, very beginning, when we were just live in Boston, it was called RunMyErrand.com. <laughs> I hated that name from the very beginning. But it was the first thing I actually thought of that night I was out of dog food. Um, but then when we launched San Francisco, we changed the name to TaskRabbit. So going from like this idea, your dog needing to eat, to seeing an opportunity, seeing emerging technology, getting ahead of it, to actually doing it was a fairly fast turnaround. Walk us through like, how did you, what happened from that night to just a few months later? So, you know, I tell the story like it was this moment of inspiration. And then four months later, I quit my job. And like, that is all true. But the story that, you know, I don't usually have time to tell is that for many months, even years leading up to that moment, I was sort of getting bored at IBM. I sort of felt like I had these other skill sets that I wanted to explore that I wasn't utilizing on a daily basis. And so I had been thinking a lot about new ideas and, you know, joining a startup or, or doing something on my own. Um, there's this great book. I don't know if you guys have read it by Adam Grant called Originals. Yeah, yeah we love he, it. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so Adam writes about this concept of vuja day, which is the opposite of deja vu, right? <laughs> right? And deja vu is when you see something and you uh, you feel like you've seen it before. It feels familiar to you, but you've only seen it for the first time. So Vuja Day is the opposite of that, where you see something a thousand times, but you're able to take a step back and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. And because I was you know, sort of bored at IBM and thinking about new ideas, I definitely was in a mindset of Vuja Day. Like I would look at everything in my life and question like, is there a solution here? Is there something to build here? And so that moment of inspiration when I was out of dog food could have just come and gone like any other time. But because I was in this entrepreneurial mindset, I was able to kind of capture that moment and discover it as as something that could then turn into a company. I want to contextualize this a little bit because here we are, 2019, it seems so normal that you would just like let a stranger into your apartment or get into their car. And you touched on this a little bit, but for a lot of our listeners who (laughs) are used to that, it was not always like that. Like it was still a weird thing to let someone into your home. Yes. Can you talk about how did you guys market that? I know you talked about Facebook, but it's got to go beyond that. Like how did you make that did you think it was going to be as big of a challenge as it was? Did it turn out to be much easier to convince people to let people they don't know into their lives? So, I mean, it's a it is a great question because, like I said, I'll just really emphasize, like, people really thought that I was insane, that you would let a stranger into your home, like, and ask for help. And the idea that you would hail a car off the street, a stranger off the street, and jump into the back of their seat, like, it was unheard yeah. of. Unheard of. There's that meme that always goes around Instagram, which is like 2008 parents, like, don't get into a car with a stranger. <laughs> yeah, 2019, right. like, make sure you get an Uber. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Did you believe in, like, the stranger part? Like, did you have personal concerns around it? Um, you know, I like to think that I – so I, I met the first 30 taskers over coffee myself. Mm-hmm. 30 of them, I had coffee meetings. And sort of my litmus test was, would I invite this person – in my grandmother's house to help her get something done. 
And that's how I decided who the first 30 taskers were to start the site. Um, You know, that doesn't scale. And so I had to figure out ways to automate that. Um, And so, of course, we did background checking and then ratings and reviews came along and all these different things. But in the early days, the, the messaging and positioning around trust Uh, was incredibly important. It was the thing that we had to overcome. When you think about, you know, I would say TaskRabbit is really credited with creating the gig economy or or making, I shouldn't say creating, but really making it something that we all are aware of. And, um, you know, obviously that has taken different iterations, especially after the housing crisis in 2008. How do you think about TaskRabbit's role over the last 10 years and what that has meant for other businesses. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in 2008, um, prior to, to to founding the company, I was like June of 20, of 20, 2008 that I left IBM. It was by September that the stock market was crashing, that everyone was being laid off. And I just left this cushy job at IBM and I was thinking, what am I doing? It turned out to be the best time to start a company like TaskRabbit because so many people were looking for new ways of working and they had been laid off and they were great, highly skilled people that needed to make money and and needed new flexible ways to to work. And so I feel very fortunate that I was able to start the company at that moment in time because it, it did help. It has helped a lot of people. I mean, it's 60,000 active taskers across the country, um, you know, has been incredible to watch grow. By 2010, though, there were lots of other companies emerging and the sharing economy then became this more mainstream trend. For our listeners, can you just explain the difference between sharing economy and gig economy? Okay. So the sharing economy really focused around this idea of being able to share resources between strangers. So things like Airbnb and sharing homes, um, sharing rides like Lyft and Uber. I mean, I even lumped TaskRabbit into that and it's just the sharing of skills and sharing of time. Since then, um, and this is kind of, you know, hindsight, it's 2020, there's been a lot of controversy around the gig economy. And is it, are the impacts a good thing for workers? Are they in traditional businesses? Could it be hurting us as a workforce in different ways? Do you see that differently now than you did 10 years ago? I do. I mean, one thing, and this is sort of like a pet peeve in, that I have in the space, so I don't mean to bring it up, but for some reason, the word gig economy just like it just rubs me the wrong way because <laughs> and I think apo- it's not a good word. Yeah. yeah, it's just like it. I feel like it it um, minimizes the work and it minimizes the people doing the work. And I much prefer thinking about the freelance economy or distributed work, being able to be distributed and flexible Um And so that is one thing for me that when I started in 2008, you know, it started to really scale in 2010, this idea of the freelance economy of sharing resources, sharing skills, distributed work, it really all came down to flexibility. And that is the number one thing when we ask taskers what they want. Do you want to make money? Of course they want to make money, right? But if you ask them to stack rank my hourly rate versus the flexibility of the job versus anything else, flexibility would always come out on top. And so one thing that I learned as you look at the labor markets and the workforce is flexibility is not only key in what we've built to date at TaskRabbit, but the need for flexibility in the labor markets in general is something that 
This next generation of workers demands. It's part of their expectations on how they work. And so what we need to see happen is legislation and rules and policy evolve to meet the needs of the actual workers today, which, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily line up right now. And that's where the controversy happens. We'll get back to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about something all our guests on this show deal with, and that's traveling, usually for business. I think in the month of June, we were on something like 23 planes. Travel for work is part of our day-to-day. And we get tired. We get cranky. We just want to go home. And what we have come to love is when we stay at a hotel and it just makes it feel better, like you can breathe And that's why we're excited to partner with AC Hotels. AC Hotels is equal parts beautiful, which we appreciate, but more so functional, which we appreciate even more. If you just want to look at their Instagram, you'll know what we mean. Everything from the guest rooms to the hotel lobby to their location is completely overthought and thought out in the best way possible. Um, Can't recommend it enough. In the U.S., they have over 45 locations and cultural hubs with plans to double that, I'm sure, not to mention globally. Uh, So just go ahead and visit achotels.marriott.com to learn more. When I think back to what you built and then eventually sold. Um, It is looked at as like an inspiration to newer entrepreneurs like ourselves, like a lot of our listeners, like you built an incredible empire. And, you know, I always hate when people like tell us like, it looks easy. And, you know, we all laugh at that. I don't think what you did looked easy, but I think that you made it look really seamless in a lot of ways. And I'm sure that that is not the case. You've been very public recently about the toll that stress took on you physically and would love to just kind of dig into that a little bit and and have you talk about what that looked like for you. Yeah, I mean, it was really a roller coaster ride. There were lots of highs. There were lots of lows, uh, probably more lows than highs, you know. And, um, you know, one thing I learned early on is that I really just needed to stay level I learned not to ride the highs and get too excited about anything because there was going to be a low around the corner and I didn't want to hit rock bottom either, right? Yeah. Yeah, we get that. We joke about that all the time. Like as soon as you hit a high, it's like you're just bracing. to happen? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And so it's emotionally like just really difficult to, to, to ride both the highs and lows. So I learned how to stay level, which on some, you know, some people will say like, oh, that's too bad. Like people would say, you should celebrate that round of funding or you should celebrate being on the Today Show. And I was just like, nope, nope. Did you let your team celebrate? Yes, I definitely let the team celebrate, but I would also, you know, try to like temper the celebration with a boost of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes, and we hit this at TaskRabbit all the time, where it was like we had so much press and, you know, we were so fortunate to get all of these inbound organic leads and people wanted to talk to us about the story. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the business and the revenue and the dollars are lining up to that story, right? And there was always a lot of work to do. And so sometimes those two things, the hype and momentum, didn't necessarily match the reality. So it, it was important to kind of keep the team in reality. But I certainly, you know, personally, uh, like I was never happy. <laughs> I was never happy with anything going on, even though there were some amazing things that happened. When you talk about the the team 
celebrating these things. I just think it's so interesting to contextualize this. Like 2008 to 2011, like you're looking around and oh, people are getting laid off left and right. We talked about the housing crisis, recession. Did the stress of that moment you were building the company in add to the stress of just starting a company? Well, I mean, it was all very stressful. I would say that, um, you know, the moments that I can remember that were the most stressful were times when I had to reorganize the team. I had to let people go off the team. I had to edit the team. Um, I had to raise money. The The last round of funding for TaskRabbit was the hardest money to raise. Why do you think that was? So counterintuitive, right? I mean, at one, I think... It was hard because it was a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be hard. And it was a very small amount of money that we needed to basically get us to profitability, um, which then led to the sale to Ikea. So it was like this very small amount of money that we needed to raise. But because we had been on this venture track for eight years, right, it made it really difficult to raise the tiny bit of money at the end that we needed because no venture investor wanted to put in a tiny bit of money at that point. And as an entrepreneur for the first time, like I didn't understand that model. Yeah. You know, I would go back to my investors and be like, hey, could you throw in a million? Or like, go get a million from here. And they're like, no, 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 that like doesn't make sense for our model. I'm like, what do you mean? Like you have a billion dollars in your <laughs> right. bank. Like, just right. give it to just me. Just give me a million dollars. Yeah. Like, right. I don't understand. So, uh, but no, it, that wasn't their model. Anyone who has um, raised money from outside investors has been through that moment of like, are we going to get funding? And like, it's, it's the, oh, it is it the worst feeling. It makes me nauseous and it's, talking about it. Yeah, I know. Me too. Yes. Uh, talk through the pain. Uh, <laughs> and you have a lot of employees and you yes. have a lot of people depending on you. Yes. You recently wrote this article about stress actually putting you in the hospital. And yeah. I would love for you to share that story if you don't mind. If yeah, it was it was the last $3 million I had to raise. Um, and it wasn't coming from my internal investors because they were either, you know, tapped out or it didn't make sense for their model. And so I had to go find it externally. And at that point, when you're an eight-year-old company and you've raised f- almost $50 million, like... To ask for another three from anywhere, like the valuations don't mm-hmm. match up, right? There's ownership requirements, all these these things. And so it's kind of amazing because I had this cold inbound email off of LinkedIn from um, a TaskRabbit user in London who's just like a super fan. And he was like, hey, can I come by the TaskRabbit office the next time I'm in San Francisco? And I was like, great. Um, you know, he's like, I run this fund in London. And I was like, okay. But I didn't really know anything about what he did. So he came by the office and we really hit it off. And it turns out he runs this multi-billion oh dollar God. fund. Wow. Right. <laughs> wow. Out of the UK. Good lesson to reply to LinkedIn. I mean, I never reply <laughs> I never to LinkedIn. I never do either. Ever. Ever. Wow. But it was serendipitous. Um, and so, you know, that actually was the investor that ended up doing the three million, which was completely outside of his model and wheelhouse, but because he was such a fanatical user in London, like he really believed in the company. But, you know, after a hundred meetings with investors saying no to me, um, I I was completely stressed out. We were like two weeks away from missing payroll. Like we did not have money to pay people, you know, uh, in the company. And so uh, we were close, you know, with some of these investors, but these conversations, right, too, they like take such a long time sometimes. And so it was a Monday. I'd gone on a walk with an entrepreneur friend 
he tells me later that he felt like I looked a little like off, like a little green in the face. <laughs> but I went home and my stomach started hurting and it progressively got worse and worse and worse until I ended up taking an Uber to the emergency room at like 8 p.m. at night because I couldn't get off the couch. And then I waited five hours in the waiting room for the emergency room and it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And then I finally get in to see a doctor and he's like, your colon is about to burst. (gasps) And they had done an MRI and he was like, you know, we don't know what causes this, but have you been under a lot of stress (laughs) lately? And he's like, it's stress induced colitis. And so I ended up in the hospital for five days straight, pumped full of antibiotics, Thankfully, no surgery was needed because the antibiotics, um, you know, solved the problem. But I remember I was like making calls to London from my hospital bed, like trying to get this deal closed. How does that experience both trying to raise that last three million and also separately the intense stress um, help you on the other side now when you're looking at investing? Well, I mean, I think as an investor, I have a lot of empathy, a lot of empathy for the founders that are coming in to pitch that are sitting in front of me. I want to understand not just about their business models and, you know, their visions for the business, but I want to understand who they are and what drives them. And when Chris and I invest in a company, we're not just investing the dollars. We want to invest in those people. And so both Chris and I are big believers in, you know, just the importance around a founder's health and wellness and overall sustainability. And I believe that that really influences cultures and teams and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at a time can be influenced if the founder actually is in a really healthy, stable place. After hitting a very scary point, how have you, as you continued to grow and then sell TaskRabbit and now in this new role, how do you manage stress now? Do you do do you have different tools today? Well, I think, you know, everyone is different. And I think for me, I found that I have to have time to exercise. For me, that is the thing. Um, And so I try to do something really active every single day. And I need something for me that is like mentally exhausting as it is physically exhausting. Did you do something today? I, I did Soul Cycle this morning. Okay. Yeah. So um I, I actually Soul Cycle is kind of my go-to because I feel like it is both mentally and physically exhausting. But I've tried a lot of other things. I like all kinds of different things. I also went on this like four-day retreat where we hiked 10 miles a day and mm-hmm. it was amazing. I did that recently. Um so I think everybody's different. Um, you know, meditation can also be something if you can carve out like 10 minutes a day. Um, to just take time, quiet your mind, refocus. That's something I think that can be real helpful as well. So for me, the trick is scheduling it into my day. And if it is not on my calendar, I am not going to do it. And so making sure that every day there's sometimes something that just allows your mind and body to kind of reset and stay healthy, I think is important. So this summer, we've done a lot. We went on a book tour. We saw you guys in 10 different cities. We were on like 30 planes. It's been crazy. And one of the things that we are so happy to have back at home is a good toothbrush. And our favorite is Quip. So there are a lot of reasons why we like Quip. 
one of them is that we like to have matching things. We both have matching quips. <laughs> Apparently. One of the things that I love is that you can stick it on your mirror. Yes. The other reason that we love Quip is that um, there are no wires. There's no clunky charger. It can run for about three months on a single charge. And then just when you think you're like, oh, I need a new brush head, the brush heads are automatically delivered um, every three months for just $5. So they know exactly what you want and um, you don't have to think about it. We can't recommend it enough. So Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com skim right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash skim. How do you support uh, the founders that you work with on that piece? Because yeah. I think it's a, it's a good thing to say or to talk about when a founder is looking to raise and they're making a decision between funds. It's another thing when that founder is actually in the middle of a raise and you see them burned out. Right. So a couple of things. One is my experience as a founder was that there are very few investors that, you know, uh, I felt like I could even you know, admit that I had went to work out like, oh, you spent an hour away from the office today. Like the the pressure I felt from my investors was real. And some of that was in my head, but some of that was from them. Right. And I remember one investor telling me one time, like, you know, you post a lot of pictures with your family, your kids. Stop. Yes. Oh, my God. And so, like, what message does that send Are to a serious? founder? Yes. What did you say? I mean, at the time, I just said, Yes, it's like I'm with my family. I'm. It's like it was. It, it, Did you, at the time, know that like that was so inappropriate and absolutely, offensive? yeah, okay. absolutely. But you know, I also had raised a lot of money at that point. I had a great relationship with my board, and so I felt very confident about where I was and who I was. I can imagine a lot of first-time founders that get that sort of feedback from an investor like that does not set them right on a that's, on a good path. That's horrifying. It is. So as so for me as an investor now, I think simply just talking about it, you know, giving not only permission, but the encouragement to take the time. And so we've launched a whole series of events that we call Refuel, Fuel Capital. So we do these regularly and we invite uh, founders to come and refuel with us. And we'll do a soul cycle class or a boot camp class or we'll go on a hike. We're doing actually a two-day retreat for our portfolio company in October. So a lot of funds will do, you know, a two-day CEO summit and they'll bring in business leaders to talk about business. We're like, our founders can get business advice from anywhere and they can get it from us too. That's cool. I'm happy to share business advice, but we're going to do a two day overnight retreat that will just refuel and reset our founders in our portfolio. So actually making the investment there. I want to talk about finally the the career transition. So in 2017, you sold TaskRabbit and then we've talked a little bit about fuel. Um, I want to go back to that that moment when you sold. Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, well, TaskRabbit is my first baby. So I've since had two other babies since then. <laughs> but TaskRabbit is really the first. And so, you know, it was exciting, but it was also emotional. And I remember being on the board call that we had to formally vote on doing the sale. 
you know, and everyone went around and voted and I was last and I was in tears. Oh my God. But it was like happy tears, but it was also like, this is an end. This is the end of this chapter. And so it was very emotional, uh, but I felt like as a founder, for me, it was my dream to build something that lived beyond me. And I felt like I was sending my kid off to college and they didn't need me anymore and they were going to go and thrive on their own. And so that was really fulfilling. And to see that now play out too over the last couple of years that IKEA has run the business, it's been great. Of course, I had, you know, an amazing team like Stacy as the CEO to really, who I trust so much, right, to continue to be there. So I think all of that made it a lot easier for me. Um, but it was, you know, an exciting and emotional time. So I'm going to transition now to our last segment, our favorite, the lightning round goes like this. We will give you a prompt. You have to answer as quickly as possible. All right. Okay. First one. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? An astronaut (laughs) or ballet dancer. (laughs) College major. Math, computer science, and dance. First job. Bank teller. Worst job. Babysitting. Last task you did as a task rabbit, like that I did as a task rabbit, well, or that I, I posted as a task. Because I've done both. Right. I actually want both answers. Yeah. What's the last one that you personally did? <laughs> the last one I personally did was probably picking up dry cleaning for someone. Um, and then the last task that I posted was some uh, yard work help that I needed in California. Yeah. Worst professional mistake you've ever made? Hiring the wrong people. First call when you get good news. Oh, my sister. What about bad news? I don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Um, Well, I negotiate a lot every day on behalf of fuel and deals that I'm getting into. Yeah. What is your go-to interview question when you're hiring someone? What do you wish you had done 20 years ago? How do people know when you're stressed? They don't. Um, What drives you today? Learning new things. What's your shameless plug? We've got an incredible portfolio at Fuel, including uh, companies right here actually based in New York. Uh, Companies like Good Dog that are connecting dog breeders with uh, people looking for dogs. We've got this amazing female founder, Sally Christensen, who started a company called Argent, which is reinventing uh, women's workwear. Um, So a lot of fun fuel companies. Great, Leah, thank you so much. Congratulations on Thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.